When you think of famous celebrities, Shay Hooray probably may not be the first name that comes to your mind. Or in all honesty, it probably doesn't even pop up when you start naming and listing off ones. Now, if you lived in New Zealand, though, this, may name, this name may sound just a little bit more familiar, although you've probably heard him under the name The Rubber Band Boy. Why? Because he's one of the world's most unusual performing artists, taking tight rubber bands and wrapping them around his face. It's not just a beautiful, beautiful picture. Say smile, and that's what you get. He grew up surrounded by rubber bands in his parents' New Zealand rubber band office, his parents' office supply shop, and he used these small devices to make all kinds of contraptions. He specializes in comedy and unicycle and pogo stick routines, but it's this rubber band boy routine that made him famous. In fact, in 2011, he managed to stretch a whopping 78 rubber bands around his head. In 2011, that's what he was able to accomplish, but that feat was bested in 2012 by a man in India who managed to wrap 82 around his face. Either way, there's a strange fascination that we have not only with feats like what Shea can perform, but with just these little pieces of rubber, these rubber bands. We're fascinated with them because of what they can do. Now, when I was a boy, I had a best friend that I shared many common interests with, Star Wars, G.I. Joes, and other things. And when we would get together, we would bring these little plastic army men and we'd use Lincoln logs and we'd build these really high, elaborate forts, put our station, our little army men all over these little forts, and then we'd take uh, rubber band shooters fashioned out of wood and clothespins, and we'd take turns shooting little, shooting little army guys off of them. I love rubber bands, and I use them for a multitude of things. I've got like six of them on my arm right now just so I could demonstrate some of these things. Well, I, I actually got in a lot of trouble when I was in elementary school because I would make these little things called hornets, or at least that's what we called them, and they were these tight little pieces of paper, and we'd use those, and we'd kind of launch them at each other, and um, they hurt quite bad. The thing is, string just doesn't cut it. I mean, we could try to take a piece of string, and we could, you know, try to launch it, and maybe it gets some distance, but not quite as far as if we take a rubber band. Now, where do we put it? Do we put it right here on the end, the top? No, we station it right in the middle, right? Because that's where we know it's gonna get the farthest distance. Holding stuff together, securing things from falling off, and of course, launching them at each other. But have you ever thought about why we just love rubber bands so much? If it were just a piece of string, again, it's not gonna cut it, is it? Now, when we pull the rubber, it stretches, creating potential energy, which is then turned into kinetic energy when we release the rubber. And it's in this tension and that release of energy that can cause the objects to be launched. We love rubber bands because of tension. And if it wasn't for this tension, then it would just be any other piece of string or rope. Now, when we think of that word tension, apart from this example of a rubber band, we tend to paint it into a little bit of a negative light, right? We don't like being in tense situations. You've heard that, that uh, phrase, you know, I walked in the room and 
the situation was so tense you could cut it with a knife, right? Nobody likes walking into those. The idea of being stretched tight, often to the point of mental or emotional strain, doesn't usually excite us. In fact, we're more than likely going to run from it. So what does this idea of tension and, and rubber bands have anything at all to do with God? Well, I want to invite you into this mindset that it has everything to do with God. It has to do with our relationship with him and our relationship with others. In his book, Messy Grace, author Caleb Kaltenbach reminds us of the kind of tension that we live in as followers of Jesus. Specifically, what is on either side of that tension? Caleb states this, I want to invite you to live in the tension of grace and truth. I'm not asking you to do something that you're not already doing. Christianity is filled with tension. We believe in one God, but he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus was fully God and fully human. The Bible was written by human authors, but inspired by God. The tension of predestination and free will have brought lively debates throughout the years. Even the discussion of faith and works is filled with tension. You may have never thought about your faith in this way, but you're already living in tension. I found that statement just so profound. When we look at life like a rubber band, it's not a loose and unstretched band, but it's one pulled tight between these two ideas, grace and truth. And now as, as Christians, we tend to think of, of grace and truth as two ideas on opposite ends of the line, right? And we or someone else may place ourselves somewhere on that line of where we feel like we, we live. But we already said, where's the best point on that rubber band? That point right in the middle of that band. And it's here in the middle, between these two ideas of grace and truth, that Jesus shows us there's something there. And so what's in the middle? What is in the middle between that grace and that truth? Well, to answer that question, we turn to an amazing encounter that Jesus had with some religious leaders and a woman. An encounter that's not only one of my favorite passages to read, but a moment filled with extreme tension. Tension between the crowd, tension between the leaders, this woman, Jesus, the story, of course, and this idea of grace and truth. We find this encounter beginning in the biography of Canon Jesus, written by John. It takes place in the seventh chapter, beginning in verse 73. And you're welcome to read along with me. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him. And he sat down, and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charges to bring against him. Jesus bent down, and he wrote with his fingers on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, Let him who is without sin among you, 
be the first to throw a stone at her. And then once more, he bent down and he wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go from now and sin no more. After a night of heated debates in the temple courts during the festival of the tabernacles, everyone went home and Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives. While many would have been gathering their belongings to return home towards the end of the festival, Jesus returns the next morning to the temple, the very place where just the day before there were people who believed he was the Messiah, some who believed he was crazy, the place where the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest Jesus, but the guards didn't. Now, some might question why Jesus would, 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 would even return. But with Jesus, there's always a reason. Nonetheless, the same Pharisees who had tried to have Jesus arrested devised another plan. Amidst the eager audience and attendance that day, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees had sprung a trap on two individuals, a woman and soon Jesus. The first individual, the woman, was caught in the act, busted in the moment of adultery. Now, we're not told how this woman felt or the way in which she reacted at first, but we can speculate by putting ourselves in her shoes. Here she is in the midst of a hungry and murderous crowd, embarrassed, with her heart pounding, sweaty hands, knowing that she just might not make it out alive. Worst yet is that she's alone, disgraced publicly, without even the support of her lover, where, hmm, where is he, by the way? The law was clear. Those who had committed adultery were to be sentenced to death. But herein lies the first point of the hypocrisy from the teachers and the Pharisees. If these two individuals were caught in the act, where's the man who would have been equally guilty and deserving of the death sentence? This man's absence is a glaring inconsistency. So here she was, caught in a trap, a tense situation. Perhaps a malicious trap set for just this purpose, to trap the one they really wished to condemn, Jesus. They showed their cards. They didn't care for the sin nor for the woman. They were only out to trap Jesus, to demand that he pick a side. Are you going to show grace, Jesus, and thus disobey the law, or go straight for the truth, condemning this woman? So now we supposedly have Jesus caught in a trap, just like the woman, or so they thought. What do you say, Jesus? Here's the crux of the matter. Now, if Jesus had condemned the woman, they could have executed the woman and went to Pilate with charges that he was in rebellion and inciting others to rebel against Rome by pronouncing capital punishment. But on the other hand, if he excused the woman, he might lose face with the crowd and he would be accused of contradicting the Old Testament law of Moses. Now, of course, leaders were careful to present their demands to Jesus amidst a public service where there would be a multitude of witnesses to destroy his reputation. And all of this is what makes Jesus' actions and response that much more powerful. Jesus just turns around, 
almost as if he's completely disinterested in this whole question, and he starts riding in the dirt. The temple area, paved with stone, with sand and dust gathered from the thousands of passing feet of the festival. Where's the tension, Jesus? This moment brings so many questions. What was he doing? Was he ignoring them? Was he building a case against them? Was he even listening? Why are you so silent at this moment? What was he writing? There are so many speculations. Some have said this gesture of turning aside, it could signify something else was on his mind or to indicate shame as if he was hiding his face. Now, these explanations are just completely absurd and foreign to the spotless, sinless character of Jesus. Not to mention the absolute calmness in which he called sinners to repentance. Other more attractive explanations as to why Jesus turned aside and wrote in the dirt was not out of hesitancy or embarrassment, but to rather multiply the religious leader's embarrassment when he called out their deliberate hypocrisy. Others say that he wrote accusations against many of the Sanhedrin uh, members. Some state that he just wrote names. We're curious about what Jesus wrote on the ground. But this silence from Jesus and the attention from the crowd only emboldened the religious leaders to push further and louder in their demands from Jesus. After all, they were being pushed farther and farther into a tense situation, right? Regardless of our curiosity and what we might speculate about what Jesus wrote, apparently didn't matter. If it was important to this history moment, I have no doubt that it would have been recorded. The emphasis, though, was placed on the act of Jesus' writing, and not specifically what he wrote. Finally, though, the religious leaders get a response. Jesus drops the hammer in a calm manner. Jesus gives them an answer, not the answer they were expecting. When he says these words, if any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Boom. Mic drop. With this response, he neither disregards the law of Moses nor the precious life of the woman caught in the crossfires. He exposed them, turned the tables right around and made clear their devious plot against him. After all, they were trying to nail Jesus and not this woman. Now who's caught in the act? Then what did Jesus do? He turns right back around and starts doodling in the sand again. This time, though, instead of shouts of accusation and demands for an answer, the leaders in the crowd respond in more than a death-like silence as they really contemplate Jesus' words. Then they turn and they leave. Not the crowd, but rather the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders, the eldest of them leaving first. Now, we're not told why the eldest left first, but one can draw the conclusion that it could have been that their hearts were the hardest or they were the chief of sinners, or their wisdom and knowledge of their life of sinfulness. Either way, they were the leaders in this moment, the ones who tried to trap Jesus. Undoubtedly, the furious pressure within and the fear of exposure would have been the strongest on them. The crowd was listening, waiting even. By turning around and writing in the sand, Jesus increased their embarrassment and the pressure rather than expecting them to take another opportunity to accuse him. 
The longer that Jesus waited while they hesitated to speak, the stronger the pressure against them. If they picked up a stone and they began throwing, the death sentence may just rain down on them too. The accusers are gone. Only Jesus is left with her in the center of the crowd of disciples. He knows the accusers left, but turns his attention to the woman and prompts a response from her by his question. And she responds with the acknowledgement, a humble reply, an open door of hope. Now this moment harkens back to the encounter and the response he gave to a woman in Simon's house. He had told the woman who washed his feet with her tears that her sins were forgiven. Now in this moment, he gives this woman a different reply. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. She's forgiven. She's free. Grace and truth were blessed upon this woman. Jesus' forgiveness is freely given But there's a cost, and he shared this with her. With forgiveness and grace showered upon her, there's an expectation of repentance and godliness, a commission of a pure life. We're not told what she does, and it's not impossible to believe that the woman left with an unchanged heart and unrepentant. I think it's very, very, very unlikely in this case. Each person's heart is laid open before Jesus. He knows our true intent, And if this woman had been unrepentant without a changed heart, Jesus more than likely would have called her out just like he did the Pharisees. Instead, he replies with kind, merciful, grace-filled words. And to me and others, his reply implies a change and a call to leave as a new person. The trap set before Jesus and his response to not only the religious leaders, but to the woman shows us what Jesus came here to accomplish. Jesus didn't gloss over her sins and act like it wasn't one. He refused to pass the death sentence on her, instead showing her a life of forgiveness made possible by her repentance and the will to live a godly life. On the other hand, Jesus dished out a stern course for her accusers because of their hypocrisy and the true intent of their hearts, thus revealing the difference between the law and the gospel. The law as presented by these Pharisees offered only justice, while the gospel extends mercy and grace to those who accept salvation from God and follow him. The gospel, both grace and truth, And so going back to this idea of grace and truth, do you see both at play in this encounter? Do you see Jesus displaying both grace and truth? What's in the middle? Think about what Jesus' last words were to this woman. Neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Think about how this reaction and and statement enlightens us to Jesus' character. Jumping back to the beginning of this biography account of John and John 1.14 and John 1.17, we're told what Jesus came here to fulfill. John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace 
and truth. John 1, 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. When freeing this woman, Jesus displayed both qualities, right? He showed grace when he set her free from her death sentence. And if anyone had a right to condemn this woman, it was Jesus, who was, after all, God in the flesh. But instead, he chose mercy and forgiveness. But then he also demonstrated truth. He didn't just pass off her actions as if they're okay. Instead, he called it sin and told her, don't do it anymore. Jesus is showing us and calling us to do that very same thing, to live in the tension of grace and truth. But how? What's in the middle that helps us do that? Think about Jesus' feelings towards this woman. What was he demonstrating above all else? Love. Love is the point in the middle. It's the tension of this grace and this truth. Now, what does that mean for you and for me? Well, Jesus offers us the same grace and truth. He looks at us and knows us inside and out. But because of what he has done for us by sacrificing his life on the cross, he's washed us clean of all these things. He offers us a hand, lifts us up out of the dirt that we find ourselves in, and he shows us mercy and compassion and forgiveness and love. He loves you so much and he wants to have a deeper relationship with you. Draw near to Jesus. He wants to speak truth into your lives and help you to see. And that is what he is offering you. Now, if this is you today, if you feel beat up and down by this world and the things in it, if you feel pushed down in the dirt by the weight of your past, then this is for you. Jesus is reaching out a hand. He's picking you up and he's telling you that he cares, that he loves you. Now go and live your life like Jesus, working hard to leave your mistakes, burdens, and sins in the past. Now maybe though you've already made this decision to follow Jesus and have demonstrated this to God and others in baptism, you're pursuing a life like Jesus then my challenge and encouragement for you is this. Live your life with the same kind of tension. The tension of grace and truth born out of love for others. When you know you have a person in your life involved in activities and life choices that are definitely not healthy, feel love and compassion for them. You're not here to judge and condemn anyone. You're here to demonstrate love but also truth. This is what it truly means to live in the tension of grace and truth. You feel love for everyone, but you also need the, but also the need to speak the truth into their life. But if you run at someone without even showing some grace, do you think they're ever gonna even listen to the truth? I know many of you have been in this circumstance, maybe even right now. Welcome to the tension. And if you don't have this in your life, ask yourself if you're putting yourself near someone who needs to hear about Jesus. There's the challenge. There's your New Year's resolution. 
Not only live in the tension of grace and truth, but make yourselves vulnerable to the lives of other people. Meet people in their messy lives. Feel the tension. Extend the grace that only Jesus can. And then share the truth. But if you're in that messy part of of life yourself, feel the grace. Feel the love and the compassion offered to you by Jesus. Make this moment the decision to turn away from the weight of all of that sin and disobedience holding you back and dedicate your life to Jesus. Discover the truth. If you wanna know more about what that means, I would be happy to sit down and talk to you about giving your life to Jesus. And I know the leaders here would just love to do that very same thing. And if that's a decision that you need to make, Please do so as we stand and we sing our hymn of invitation.
New Year. I'm so glad I got an opportunity to worship and be here together with you all and to see those lovely and smiling faces. Hopefully you've all had a wonderful Christmas and a wonderful Happy New Year with your family and friends. And I also want you to just be mindful of others who this may be a tough season for them. So keep them on your hearts and your minds and pray for those who are having a tough time right now or may have lost family members. In fact, let's just say a word of prayer for everyone. Dear Lord, we come before you today and we thank you for this opportunity to dig into your word, to worship together and to just praise your holy name. We are mindful of those who are having a difficult time this season, Lord. We pray that you strengthen them up, that you lift them up and just wrap your loving arms around them, guide them through this time. It's in your wonderful name, wonderful name we pray, Jesus, amen. Well, I can't wait to see you back next week. We're gonna continue this idea of grace and truth, and we're gonna talk about what holds us back from living in that tension. Until next week, I hope you have a blessed week, and I'll see y'all later.